0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: The human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine. And we can learn to use them in new and powerful ways to create the life we've always dreamed of. On our program today, with your host, Dr. Irene Conlin, we'll address who you are, how to come to know what you believe and why, how to accept and love yourself, and how you can make changes that help you create the empowered, happy, successful life you want. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlin.
2: Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon. We're broadcasting from Fountain Hills, Arizona, and I'm absolutely delighted to have you join with us today. Today, we're going to give you something different from our usual uh, kind of program, and, and I want you to listen up because this is really good stuff. This show is brought to you by Slim Roast Coffee. How many of you can say that you've lost 40 pounds by just drinking coffee? No diet, no deprivation, no cravings. If you want to know more, go to the self-improvement blog and click on the cup of coffee in the right sidebar. And while you're on the blog, take a look at our guest picture and read his bio if you haven't done that already during the week. Not long ago, I heard myself making the comment, at my age, everyone I know was either senile or dead. Now, I was entering a new business endeavor and thinking about who I could share it with, The statement was exaggerated, of course, but still it was pretty close to the truth. And it stayed in the back of my mind You know that I said it was kind of a surprise to me, even though I'd been thinking it. I thought about how fortunate I am to have my health and be able to start new things at my age. And I'm not going to tell you what that age is, but it's right up there. A few days after that, I received a book titled Having the Last Say, Capturing your legacy in one small story. And I thought of my statement because attached to that was a wonderment of whether or not I'll be remembered when I die and whether some of my friends will as well. And if we're remembered, what about it is it that people will remember? Now, think about it. And I want to say, you know, this is written basically for us older folks. But you don't have to be older than dirt like I am to do it. Now, get this book because it's going to help you with your writing in any number of areas. Now, I've already chosen my memory to write about, and you're probably going to see it on the blog one of these days, so just stay tuned for that one. I'm grateful to Alan Gelb for this book, but I'm especially thankful To Alan for setting me free from the guilt I have when I purposely end a sentence with a preposition. Alan Gelb is a seasoned writer who has published novels with G.P. Putnam's Sons, St. Martin's Press, Dell, Avon, and more. In 2008, Ten Speed Press published his Conquering the College Admissions essay in 10 Steps often ranked the number one college essay book on Amazon. His latest book, Having the Last Say, Capturing Your Legacy in One Small Story, enables older people to engage in life review and create narratives that explore their values and beliefs. For almost 30 years, Alan and his wife, Karen Levine, a journalist turned psychotherapist, that's a lovely combination, by the way, have lived in the middle of 15 acres in Chatham, New York. Makes me think of 100 acres wood or whatever that is Winnie the Pooh lives in. Alan is an avid gardener, feeder of birds, and spectator of wild turkeys and the occasional bear that visits the property. And it is my absolute delight to welcome Alan Gelb to the Self-Improvement Show. Alan, welcome.
3: Irene, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on, and thank you for that lovely introduction.
2: Well, you know, we have to sit down and write those things, and as I was writing mine, I'm thinking, wow, this guy's a pro. I wonder what he's going to find in my introduction.
3: (laughs) Everybody has a story. That's the key. (laughs) At least one.
2: At least one. Uh, I have this question I start every show with, and that is, tell us about yourself, Who is Alan Gelb?
3: Well, like everybody who's listening, I'm many people. I'm a husband. I'm a father, a grandfather. I am a a neighbor and a community member. But professionally, I've been a writer all of my life. uh, Sometimes on my own. Sometimes working in uh, uh, other kind of capacities and business and film. And over the last, um, I'd say, fifteen years. I've been a writing coach, and if you're not familiar with that term, and most people aren't, what that means is that I act sort of somewhere between a teacher and an editor. I work with people who are uh, a lot of young people who are applying to colleges and helping them with their essays, and I've started to work with older people who are trying to do this exercise that I've presented in my new book, and in terms of being a coach, What I do is is facilitate their expression and help them create a product that they're proud of.
2: And from reading your book, you've gotten a number of them to to create something not only that they can be proud of, but that really show who they are and, and can help other people in the process i was just i really loved the stories that you yep. included in the book and i especially liked the different drafts and we're going to talk about that i love the way mm-hmm. they developed the work with your help
3: yeah, but you've published
2: a long list of books including a series of survival guides that i think most of them you did with your wife how did you discover your talent for and love for for writing. Did you know early on that you wanted to write or how did that so, come about? So
3: early. I mean I was doing this when I was in second grade, writing really quite ambitious and thinking back, you know, now that I have grandchildren who are almost in at that age, I mean I was pretty precocious, I have to say. So I just seemed to have a kind of a you know, kind of a gift for it. And, you know, it sort of went Up and down, you know, sometimes it wasn't that present in my life, other times it was, but as I, um, you know, uh, became an adult, it really became obvious to me that that's the thing that I should be doing, that's what I'm quite good at, and I'm actually a writer who can, who's worked in so many different mediums, Uh, I've been a, uh, I've written a a, a true crime book about a multiple murder on my road up here in the country, I've written for Soap Opera, I've written for business and colleges and universities all over the country. Uh, I kind of am a writer who can you just point me in a certain direction and I can figure out how to do it. So that's been my um, uh, reason, my, my, that's been the key to my uh, being able to survive as a writer because it is certainly not an easy life.
2: No, I was going to say, what kind of courage did it take for you to quit your day job, whatever that was? And write for a living because
3: yeah. you either make it or you job. don't. <laughs> I barely <laughs> ever had a day job. I went into day jobs when the uh, writing wasn't working out so well, and I I had to do that you know at a number of points in my career. But uh, over the last uh, you know twenty years, my uh, my career has actually really stabilized and you know been good.
2: And you wrote the the book for college students and as I understand it from that you patterned having the last say how did you get into helping the college students with their admissions essay I think that's a fascinating thing and then how did you realize that seniors could use this to leave their legacy
3: all right well that's it's going to take me a few minutes to answer that question.
2: Okay, we got a few minutes.
3: Okay, so I got into the college admission uh, work in a very personal way. Uh, we live in a small town, a very small rural town in, a, in upstate New York, and um, my my two sons, who were you know quite academic in nature, uh, were applying to very selective schools. And while the school here was fine in many respects, it was not strong in the area of college admissions. So I didn't feel anybody was actually understanding what that admissions essay was all about. And When I say admissions essay, students have to write uh, uh, about a 650-word essay uh, that's on a range of subjects, but they have to pick something that expresses who they are and casts them in a very positive light for the admissions committee, and it's very hard for students to so sort of pick out the facet of who they are, and you know do that work. So I did that with my sons, and then I started doing it with uh, other friends and kids in the community, and then friends of friends, and it just started kind of building up. And I realized that I had a theory that was uh, quite distinctive in terms of this assignment, which is that the best way to approach assignment assignment was to was to use a narrative, to tell a story, and I um, distilled in my book. That four elements of a narrative that makes it very clear, I think, for any um, writer to understand what you need to do to tell a story effectively. And, and we'll talk of,
2: about what that narrative yeah, contains. Yeah.
3: And then, uh, so I've been doing that for not, quite a few years, working with students all over the world, which is really interesting for me because I work with students in Singapore and Nigeria and, you know, wherever it's all, you know, we live in a world now that you can do that just at the push of a button and um, and uh what i happened what happened with me is that you know as i was getting older i'm 65 now i uh find myself you know increasingly at um memorial services of friends and people in my life that are have passed on and uh you know the reality of that is that you know sometimes when i've been at these services i i appreciate what people are saying about the person who's no longer with us, but I really want to hear the voice of that person one more time. I feel like I want that person more in the room and not just hear about that person. And that for me, at some point was like, you know, an aha moment. I realized that I could take what I do with the 17 year olds, which is essentially helping them with a life review exercise. They have to look back over 17 years, pick a moment out of their life and create a 650 word narrative I could do that with people my age and older who wanted to do the same thing with the idea of leaving a gift for people in their life, or even have something that could be read at their own memorial service. And that's what I set out to do.
2: And it's interesting because when you start looking back over 70 or 80 years, you know, how, how do you pick you know, how do you pick one? Some of us have had several lifetimes in this one in terms of career changes and lifestyle and all of that. And looking back, I mean, it's an exciting review to look back. It's exciting,
3: and, you know, uh, I don't want people to think that it's such an overwhelming thing to pick out a moment of your life because, well, for two reasons. One is that you don't have to pick just one moment, you know, even though it's called the last say. People can do a number of these if they get into them. Uh, But what I also want to say about it is that the moment that people tend to write about is is not necessarily the big moment in their life. They wind up writing about smaller moments that might be um, lost otherwise if they didn't write about them. And they find that moment through an exploratory process that I've devised, uh, which involves answering about 30 questions. It's exactly the same process that I use with the 17-year-olds, and some of the questions are exactly the same. And we're going to
2: talk about that right now. It's time for us to go to break. Hmm. When we come back, we're going to find out a whole lot more about how you, the listener, can begin to do this too because it's a lot of fun. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more with Alan Gelb.
4: When you think of inspiring women, who comes to mind? Is it a visionary like Oprah Winfrey? Political or legal figures like Hillary Clinton or Sonia Sotomayor? Or how about entrepreneurial business leaders like Meg Whitman? No matter whom you might be thinking of, make sure to add one more to that list. Deanne DeMarco. She's the host of Today's Inspiring Women. Each week, Deanne turns you on to the next rising star in business and leadership and what their successes and challenges have been. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
1: You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the self improvement blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the self improvement show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome
2: back to the self improvement show. Our guest today. Is Alan Gelp, who's written a book called "Having the Last Say." Don't we all want to have a last say? Absolutely. Um, One of the questions that kept, you know, that that was spawned in my mind from reading the book is: Why should we write? What does writing do for us? You know, why should average Joe, the plumber, um, write?
3: yeah Alan? well there's there's many reasons why people write they write to connect with other people they write to preserve uh, a tradition or a folk way they write to instruct they write to uh uh confess uh they write to amuse to arouse people uh, with a you know round of uh, an issue so there are many way reasons that people write but I think you know generally speaking the reason that uh people should write and want to write is because it's expression, you know, and we're all looking for ways to, uh, leave our mark. Um, there's a quote from the very well-known writing coach, uh, Natalie Goldberg, uh, in the book that, uh, I don't know the specific quote, but it's something like writers get to live twice, something like that. You know, that there's a certain aspect of, of, uh, living on in the writing. And that's, um, something that's uh, powerful, I think, for a lot of people.
2: You know, as I read your book, I, I, and you gave the first draft, the second draft, and then the final form of that essay, I'm thinking, you know, this is not that far different from a sculptor who, who gets the raw goods, and, you know, pretty soon you begin to see the shape, and then finally you see the finished product, and it's beautiful.
3: Absolutely. I, I, I use that metaphor, actually. I Oh, I didn't
2: know that. But...
3: <laughs> I do. I say, you know, when you start, it's like this inert lump of clay, and then you start chipping, chipping away. And at the same time, I use another metaphor, which is that it's like the, the chef who starts with, you know, tomatoes and onions and garlic and then throws it all together and then something sort of al- alchemical comes about, you know, some some magic happens.
2: Some magic but you happens. know, the,
3: the first metaphor is is really uh, apt, I think, of the the clay. And you know, with with my uh, surely with my seventeen year old students that I work with so much, uh, they're fascinated. I mean, they're really fascinated by the the tracking of the process. Like when you're working with somebody who's actually leading you along from draft to draft. Of course, teachers do that, but they don't do it in as concentrated a time and a way as I do when I work with a student. So that lesson of seeing it being moving along so um, so uh, um, palpably from one draft to another is it's really fascinating and exciting to people.
2: It is exciting to people. Well, I was told when I was in college, I went to college after I was already an RN. I went back to get my degree. Mm -hmm. And the the teacher said we had to take, of course, the basic courses. And she said, I really don't like to have nurses in my class because they're all stupid and (laughs) um, they can't write. And I have yet to see a nurse who was able to write well enough to make an A in this class. And I thought, I'll show you.
3: That's really (laughs) motivating. (laughs) And,
2: And I worked so hard in that class. And finally, got the A, but her, her challenge was, and I, I couldn't write, I was not a good writer, mm-hmm. and by the end of the class, I certainly had some of the basics under my belt. I really am grateful to that teacher. Mm-hmm. One of the things you refer to in the book is an ethical will. Yeah. Talk a little bit about what that is.
3: Sure. So when I was, uh, you know, going back to your question about, um, you know, finding that thing you want to write about. Uh, yes, it's hard when you're 60, 70, 80 years old to look back on your life, and, you know, it's a great, huge canvas, right? Yes. So when I was thinking about, you know, this assignment and how to broach uh, it to people, uh, to me, that, uh, an, an idea that clicked in for me that I thought was really a good hook for this was the uh, idea of the ethical will. So the ethical will is uh, an ancient tradition that goes back to um, – the Bible, Jacob gave an ethical will to his sons, and the point of that is uh, to uh, pass on ethical values from one generation to the next. So a parent, let's say, might pass along an ethical will to his children to say that, you know, I believe that this is a valuable way to live if you follow these precepts. And uh, these can be either actual legal documents, which um, uh, I've seen, many of them, uh, or they could be done in the form of a letter or or whatever. So this is a tradition that comes out of uh, Judaism. And in in recent uh, years, uh, with the Jewish Renewal Movement, which is sort of like bringing more modern uh, applications to some of these precepts, there's been much more creativity around the ethical will, but for me, uh, I'm not. I mean, I respect the practice, but it, I don't find it, you know, that interesting as a, uh, in terms of literature to read an ethical will. And I felt like, you know, well, why couldn't you do that in um, the form of narrative? Why can't you capture an ethical value that you've lived by it, by, that you've lived by, and exemplify it through? This narrative that you're working on, and that's what the the writers in this book have done.
2: And they all did, and it's interesting the range of people that you have in that book, yes. um, and and they all got it. and they all yes. did a remarkable job with right. their story.
3: Yes, and sometimes, you, the, sometimes the ethical value is is subtle. It's not that it's not explicitly stated. I had to write one to model it for other people, and uh, so I wrote the first last say, and uh, mine in, in my uh, story the uh, the ethical value was very clearly stated. But you know, it has to be there in some form or another, whether it's stated or. Implicit.
2: And it is. You don't have to beat people over the head with it. And, and that's exactly. what I liked. You know, it's subtle, yeah. but it's there. Yeah. You, you said that a narrative has four main points. What do people need to have in this short story? Yeah, this so the,
3: the four main elements that I've um, uh, identified are um, the first one I call, I call it the once. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges when you write a piece whether it's a novel or a 650-word essay, is organizing the time, structuring the time of the piece.
2: The once upon a time.
3: Yes, exactly right. right. So, you know, everything starts in a place and everything ends in a pl- in a certain place. Uh, you know, I tell my high school students, you know, if they're going to write about their trip to uh, uh, Haiti to um, help build houses or whatever, you know, they can't start in the airport in Albany. They can't start in their room packing their bags they have to get into the a point in the trip you know where where the story's already beginning and then they have to figure out how to get out of that story so that's the first challenging thing to do and to uh most people who are not um writers uh it's interesting to see that you don't have to tell a story in a linear uh fashion you know starting with one going to two going to three you can start at the end let's say and work your way up to the end. And so seeing that kind of ability to manipulate time is is exciting to uh, the lay person. Uh, the second element that I've identified is what I call the extraordinary versus the ordinary. Something has to trigger the action in a story that's out of the ordinary. And I give an example of uh, someone who goes to the store and just buys... Uh, in my college essay book, I give this example of someone going to the store who buys peanut butter and stockings and milk and eggs and then you're wondering, well, where's the story? And then she goes out into the parking lot and the bag breaks and something happens that triggers a story that can go in many different directions, comic or romantic or dramatic or whatever. And the third element is um, tension and conflict. We read Literature, because we're interested in conflict. We want to see how people, human beings who are depicted on the page, how they solve the same kind of problems that we live with. So, whether it's Hamlet or, um, you know, um, um, Tony Soprano in the movies or whoever, you know, we're interested in seeing what they do with these problems. And the, the fourth element is, is, is what I call the point. Why did you tell the story? What was the point of telling the story? Often writers don't really understand what it is, or maybe sometimes they don't understand it until fairly far along in the process. And if you don't understand it, then your reader won't understand it, and there won't be a feeling of satisfaction on the part of the reader, which is very important.
2: So the story always has to have conflict or at least some tension.
3: Yes. Always. Something that and, you have to overcome be, or
2: learn or whatever?
3: Yeah, conflict could be comedy. Comedy is all about conflict. You know, the person who slips on the banana peel.
2: Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. ha- has anybody now written a series of their last days and, and are starting to put them into a book or have put them into a book? It seems to me that if you had enough of these, and some of us who are a little older have quite a few. Could this be a book?
3: Well, you absolutely could. Um, You know, I've had uh, a couple of writers who are going on to their second or third one of these, and that's just a question of of their interest, of their stamina, of their time, that sort of thing, you know. Uh, I encourage people to do one and then, you know, they could re- either rest on their laurels or if they're excited by the process of discovery that's been involved with this, then they can go on to more. Certainly, the kinds of essays that generate from this exercise, uh, they will be appreciated by uh, if you do more than one.
2: Yeah, I can see it as being a whole series of articles for the self-improvement blog. That mm-hmm. they, they just seem to be right for for that kind of purpose. We'll see what I can do with that. Yeah. The, you say in your book, the hardest part is confronting and overcoming the fear. How do you go about overcoming that fear of, oh my gosh, what, what are people going to think when they read this, or oh my gosh, you know, whatever, whatever yeah, well, there, there
3: are certain uh, levels of fear involved with writing, and I, I make a big point in the uh, book, and I'll make the same point here, which is that this fear is universal it's not like, you know, if you're uh, an amateur writer, you're experiencing fear and the pros don't feel it. The pros feel it as as just as much, if not worse, than the amateurs do uh, because there's more at stake, obviously. So everybody has uh, has to get over the hurdle of fear when they sit down to write something. And frankly, a lot of people don't bother with it because of that. So, you know, it's easier to go out to brunch, okay? But the reason that people do this is... It goes back to that idea of expression. So, you know, when you're looking toward the uh, third, what I call the third act of our lives, you know, when we're older, when we are uh, doing the work that's appropriate to this age, which is, you know, um, uh, looking back and making meaning of our life and where we um, succeeded, where we fell off, you know, fell down on the job, let's say. We want to make, uh, uh, dealing with our relationships and Our ambitions. We want to make uh, sense of all that, and this is where the uh, this exercise can be very helpful. So there's a motivation for writing that. Uh, The fear factor. uh, I do have a number of um, of uh, kind of um, um, let's call them uh, gimmicks, you know, in the book where they where it helps you get beyond your procrastination by doing certain things, like you know, setting a quota for yourself. You know, where if you just do you know a hundred words a day, which seems manageable to many of us. Things build up, you know. Um, so there are a lot of um, things like that in the book.
2: You know, I found that when I do try to write, it yeah, I'll get something on paper, and then half the time I throw that away because it wasn't anything I wanted to keep. But yeah. it got me into it. Right. And once you once you kind of break the sound barrier there you're good to go and on that note we're going to go to break this is irene conlon with my guest alan gelb saying stay tuned we're going to be right back with more
4: we're on facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world and that includes you visit us on facebook at voice america empowerment Every one of us confronts challenges that rock our world to the core, making us confused and disoriented, not knowing which way is up. On The Mother Rising, host Margaret Jacobson will nourish that spark that enlivens. You will be both empowered and inspired to create the changes leading you on your path to your own true freedom. Discover your worth and what you are capable of. Tune into The Mother Rising every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel When is the last time you saw sparkles of life in your day? Each day holds a treasure, the extra in the ordinary. It is too easy to miss them because they're familiar and we take them for granted If you want to add sparkle to your day listen to Mighty Gems spotlighting everyday jewels with D. Lee She offers a new way to view the world and to discover your own mighty gems in daily life. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
0: Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
2: Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. Our guest today is Alan Gelb, and we're talking about his book, Having the Last Say. Before we get into this section, Alan, I want you to tell our listeners how they can find you. I'll have these links on the blog as well, but if somebody wants to work with you or know more about this, how do they find you? How do they find your website?
3: Sure, they can... uh, uh... Oddly enough, my website is called HavingTheLastSay dot com.
2: <laughs> Oddly enough,
3: <laughs> and uh, so that's easy to find. And they, um, when you go on there, you can see what some of these essays look like because we have a few sample essays. And your listeners may be wondering, you know, what what do one of these things, what what do what they like? And um, if, if I can take a moment, I'll describe one. Okay.
2: Absolutely, please yeah. do.
3: So uh, one that I'm thinking of is by a, a woman uh, who I've known for quite a while who uh, has uh, – sh- she sings in a choir, and she's- she loves singing. She's a woman in her uh, early 70s. She um, has breathing problems. She has emphysema, and the essay is about uh, singing in the choir and feeling this sort of sense of fear and frustration uh, is she going to be able to actually produce the notes and so forth? And then sort of uh, going to a place of uh, some guilt around having smoked uh, a lot early in her life and having done this to herself and by extension, I guess, to her people in her life. and um, But then coming back to the um, feeling of joy and connection to her fellow choir members. And so the ethical will, uh, the ethical value that she's writing about in this, Peace, is about self-forgiveness and about acceptance of who you are and about taking pleasure in life. And so it's a very powerful story that came out of the exercise of answering these questions that we were, you were alluding to. So there's, as I said, there's about 30 questions in the book there. Very all over the place. There's questions like, you know, when have my mind and body ever felt in perfect harmony? Who's the person who surprised me the most? Which of my relationships have I worked at the hardest? Uh, have I ever felt betrayed, um, uh, You know, uh, what will I miss most when I'm gone, all kinds of questions like this. And you answer them very quickly. This is not meant to be a major writing assignment. This is meant to be answered quickly. Uh, you put them down. Uh, when you're finished, you come back to them after a couple of days. You look at them again. You come back maybe another two or three times, repeating that process, and you see which of these answers are pulling you. There, this you'll, you'll feel a kind of magnetic pull to one or the other uh, or several of them and uh, those are the ones that are sort of saying hey hey I'm I'm here I want to get written you know
2: and my and, favorite and, question in your questions is what have you done that they say couldn't be done right. i love that question and it right, right. Uh,
3: Absolutely. prompts all
2: kinds of things. You you have this wonderful phrase as you're introducing your questions, and that's insert a metaphorical dipstick into your brain to see what's yes. going on in there. I
3: that's love that right. phrase. That's um, right. That's what we do. So my friend what, who uh, did this piece that I was describing about the singing in the choir, one of her answers was to, you know, when does when does my mind and body feel in perfect harmony? Was it wasn't singing, uh, singing in a choir. Uh, another one of her answers was, um, uh, what's been uh, hardest for me, and I, as she talked about having uh, smoked and having done this to herself, and the guilt that she carries around. And so we thought of putting those two things together, you know, uh, and and it created a, a wonderful layered essay that's in the book. That's uh, really, I mean, one of the things that that strikes me so much in these uh, short narratives that both my younger students and the older writers do. Is the the degree of depth and complexity that you can achieve in a piece of writing of this length? It's quite amazing.
2: And, and, yeah, it's very powerful yeah. too. I mean, you don't get lost in so many words that you forget where you started. I, I guess you know that's a yeah. funny way to put it. But and uh, the reason
3: the reason why um, uh, I, I I said that these pieces should be five hundred to a thousand words, it wasn't just you know my arbitrary decision, uh, you know, my, uh, my authority. It was really more about, A, what I found to be a comfortable lane for the uh, average person to, to write. Uh, you know, a lot more than that. You know, I, I, I admire people who are doing memoir writing and journaling and so forth, but that, not everybody's doing that. This, this by, by a long shot, this can be done by really anybody, and you know who, who can follow the precepts which are pretty easy to follow, and the second reason for uh, that link is because one of the uh, uh, reasons for doing this, if you care to use it for that purpose is to have this r- potentially read at your own memorial service, and therefore you're asking somebody to deliver it orally for you and most people who are not you know um, expert orators like Barack Obama or Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, about five minutes of delivery is, is what they're uh, comfortable with, and piece of this length, that's how long it takes to deliver it.
2: And and those, you know, and, and there's a lot more reasons. It's just a perfect length, actually. Yeah. Yeah, how is. did you come up with these questions? I know you did the questions for the students. Uh, so originally, you had to come up with some questions. Was there a place for you to go to find these? Did you think them through yourself? No, How I thought them do through this?
3: myself. I thought them through myself. And I, um, you know, I, um, I I guess, you know, I mean it has to do with some of the intuition of being a writer for so many years. I, they seem like they kind of came to me, you know.
2: And they're just little sparks, you know, that yeah. and not all of them hit you, you know, but there's some of them that just reach out and grab you and say, pick me, <laughs> pick me. <Yeah. laughs> it's like yeah, that little volunteering mind says, I can do that. You talk about limbering exercises for the mind. Mm-hmm. What are some exercises that'll limber it up so you can, you know, recall things and, and recall and, and, and find the words that you want? to use to express it. That's sometimes the challenge is finding the right word.
3: Yeah. Well, the limbering exercise that I, one of them that I talk about is, um, is called free writing. And that's uh, sort of a a phenomenal little exercise where you just uh, tell yourself, I'm going to write for five minutes or 10 minutes, whatever you feel comfortable with. And I'm not going to think about anything having to do with sentence structure or punctuation or grammar or vocabulary. I'm just going to write, and I'm not going to lift this pen from the paper until five minutes is up. You set a timer for yourself.
2: And, and, and that was one of my questions was about free writing.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's just a freeing up exercise. So, uh, real, truly a limbering exercise for the mind and for the expression. And, uh, when you uh, finish with that exercise, you know, you can either let it, you know, disappear like a one of those Japanese sand paintings, whatever they are. And yeah. Brush, yeah. Or you can go back and look through it, and maybe there's a spark of something in there. Maybe there's a phrase that interests you. Maybe there's uh, an association to something that you want to explore. So that's one thing we, uh, that I suggest. Another little uh, thing that helps people sometimes when they're feeling stuck about actually getting words out onto paper is I suggest, you know, uh, do this as an email to a friend, you know, write this piece as an email to a friend that might free you up a bit.
2: So oh, you know what? Another good book would be How to Write Emails That Give the Message You Intend Instead of What <laughs> They Get. <laughs>
3: and, and,
2: and don't push send before you're ready, right? Don't push send before you're ready. <laughs> it's a talent in writing emails that don't offend. Yeah. You take you take people through three drafts, and I thought one of the great strengths of the book was that you let us read each draft and how it developed. I really loved that. I'm sure that there are times when people have to have more than three drafts, and my big question when I try to write is when do I stop fiddling with it when when do I declare it finished? Yeah. How do I know?
3: yeah well, you know it's funny i I, I found a a, a facsimile a reproduction of a of a of a, uh, a manuscript from Charles Dickens, which i um, have in the book, which is, just, you know, before there was word processing and cut, cutting and pasting, and it's like a complete tangle of words and corrections and so forth. So, yes, that, that writing, that, that kind of, uh, of uh, rewriting uh, is, at, is at the heart of writing, and the more uh, experience you get as a writer, the more you value and really enjoy rewriting. I mean, that's, that's the craft of writing. So for me, make you know, taking that inert lump of clay and making it into something beautiful is a uh, it's a thrilling process. Every time I do it with a student, uh, I I gain a great deal of satisfaction out of it personally because I love that watching that process of uh, you know making something, uh, of growing something that way. And when I see a student invested in it, you know, when I see a student bringing the same kind of focus to it. Uh, that I'm doing, um, that's even better. So, so what happens um, for most most people when they sit down to write something, which is why there's a lot of frustration involved, and why sometimes the piece never emerges, is because they don't really understand the process of drafting, and they don't know what what the intention is should be at the, at the various points of the of the drafting. So the book, you know, goes through a, um, kind of a detailed uh, explanation of what happens in the first draft. You know, this is a time when you're dealing with structure. You know, you might want to start your story here instead of where you've started it. You might want to uh, end it here. Nothing's going on in your middle. This is this is structural work. When you get into the second draft, you're starting to deal with uh, issues of tone. You know, something's flat here something's too extreme there, formality, informality, that sort of thing. As you go along, you deal more with polishing issues, things like word choice. Is there a better word? Uh, For instance, I discuss the um, issue of adverbs, which uh, um, most inexperienced writers rely far too heavily on adverbs and adjectives. They think that's going to pump up the level of the writing, so if you put in uh, those words... It'll seem more like a well written piece in fact, it seems like a less well written piece because it's um often those words are not used correctly because they're picked right out of a the th- thesaurus or they just hold up the writing so you know in the um uh, instance of adverbs for instance uh when you when you say you know he moves stealthily around the room uh, uh you know that's not as good as saying he uh, you know he he uh he lurked or something like that. So you look, you're looking for strong active verbs instead of adverbial phrases. So there's just a lot of information like that in the book that you know, is bound to make anybody a better writer.
2: And the information is really good, and I especially like the one about ending the sentence with a preposition. Anyway, yeah, I most note. people they
3: may not know what you're saying there, but you know, you know one of the things that we have to do uh, when we're learning to write uh, is to, uh, particularly people our age, is to um, learn to unlearn certain lessons we've been taught. So when we were small, teachers said, "Oh, you cannot, you cannot." Um, and with a prepos- uh, sentence with a preposition, and it's no big deal, really. And you could start a sentence with and, you could start a sentence with but. Yes. Uh, oh, you know, I love you don't it. have to worry about who or whom because nobody really cares about that Nobody very much, cares.
2: You know? And on that note, we need to go to break. This is Irene Conlon with my guest Alan Gelb saying stay tuned. We'll be right back.
4: success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com It's your world. It's time to access your magic
0: Find out
4: what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon.
2: Welcome back to the Self Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon. Our guest today is Alan Gelb. And I hope that while we were on break, you all ran to Amazon and ordered the book, Having the Last Say Capturing Your Legacy in One Small Story, because it's well worth it. And all of you would find I would get as a broad generalization, but such delight in knowing how you can go about having the last say. A beautiful book, well-written, funny, uh, informative. um, I loved it. Alan, one of the things you talk about that really startled me was about killing your babies or darlings. Talk about that.
3: That is a startling phrase, Irene. I agree. Uh, It's been attributed to different people. I've seen it attributed to William Faulkner. I've seen it attributed to the crime writer John McDonald. But what it means is that there's nothing so precious in your piece that it can't be killed off, even if you love it, if it doesn't serve the overall purpose of the piece. So the overall purpose of the piece is the narrative drive, you know. Your narrative has to feel like, you know, this engine that's getting somewhere.
2: It really hurts a, when you cut one of those out too, sometimes.
3: It does, <laughs> it does. And I've, I've felt that hurt many times in my career, you know, where <laughs> I just love a phrase. And I, I, you do it with characters. You know, there's some characters who, you know, hit the cutting room floor, you know, because they're just really not serving the purpose of the overall piece. So, and that that's uh, 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 just as pertinent in a piece as short as this, as do it is no longer piece.
2: Do you find that some of the people that you coach get upset when you say you've got to take that out? You just really have to take that out. Do they feel insulted that they, you know, you're judging their writing?
3: Well, you know, the the relationship between uh, the writer and, and myself is is a very collaborative one. So um, I'm not there to just take things out. I I suggest. And sometimes writers feel very strongly about keeping certain things in, and I, I can respect that. I always tell writers that I always have a good reason for why I say what I'm saying, you know? If you can back up your thinking with the same kind of reasoning, I could easily be convinced. But I know why I'm saying what I'm saying. So, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. You, you tell people to read what they've written out loud.
3: Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, you know it's, it's, you know it's the best. It's the best way of, of hearing. You know, you can't really hear a piece unless you actually hear it. So I, I always uh, tell people to do that. I, I do it myself for my own work. It's it's just that other dimension of the experience around a piece of writing.
2: Well, yeah, I even do that with the introduction to this show. I read it out yeah. loud a few times, and I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Oh, that doesn't sound right. I, you know, that isn't right. what I want to say. That, you know, oh, we, I've, read, I've read
3: whole novels out loud. Out loud
2: sure. <laughs> you know what I, I've
3: written, I mean.
2: Well, when you read your passages you don't quite get, if you read it out loud, sometimes it's like, that, oh, that's it. I just wasn't reading it right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Y- you say this in the book. And I'm thinking, well, really? I mean, my, my response is, really? Readers don't like writers who apologize. What do you mean by that? Apologize for what?
3: Well, I mean, sometimes, sometimes writers um, kind of develop a tone that's sort of like, you know, uh, I'm not sure about this or, you know, uh, uh, they're kind of qualifying a lot, you know, sort of like using those kind of constructions. And it, it, it suggests a kind of uh, insecurity that's um, not going to win fans for you. So we want to have, you know, strength in the writing.
2: You know, I, I, right off the top of my head, I can't think of what somebody would be apologizing for. You know, apologizing for what kind of thing.
3: Well, I, I just meant that the tone becomes apologetic. Oh,
2: the tone yeah. becomes apologetic. Yes.
3: Because, well, and, and and you know, <laughs> you know, unconsciously what they're apologizing for is their insecurity about their writing.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think your book will do for just anybody who reads it, everybody who reads it, make you relax about grammar.
3: Absolutely. You know,
2: you mentioned a few things that, I, that made me think, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I've been doing that, like starting a sentence with and and ending with a preposition and, you know, uh, and the sentence is much better for it.
3: Yeah. And the other thing that I always tell writers that I'm working with is reader, readers will never hold clean, simple language uh, against you. Work. Great for Hemingway, you know uh, a lot of people get um, they get sort of uh, held up with their writing because they want it to be you know uh, complex or whatever you know it's not necessary. Good, clean muscular writing is 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 really the best kind of writing, and that's something that people can achieve if they have a sense of uh, basic sense of sentence structure, which is another thing that I cover as much as I can in this book. I mean, I don't have a lot of room in this book to cover sentence structure, but I do have uh, at least one good tip, which is to start a sentence with a noun and a verb. I go to the store. Instead of going to the store, I went, and that's when people start getting... Tangled up and making Or
2: having to describe the store with 3,000 adjectives and yeah. yourself yeah. <laughs> with a couple hundred. <laughs> you know, that's, some that's, of yeah. us, I, I think of, that, of the way I was taught as Baroque writing. You know, we threw all the curlicues in there, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and sometimes it was meaningless. And I really like how you present writing good, clean sentences yeah. that the, the reader can understand
3: you and don't have really to wade
2: through paragraphs to get to yeah. the point.
3: That's really a cultural thing too, because I work, you know, in the, on the college admissions front. I work with uh, quite a few students from China, where you know they're taught to write in sort of a flowery way. You know, that doesn't play well here at all. So they have to learn. it. Doesn't how to
2: play do. in Peoria. Yeah, no.
3: no, they have to. They have to just simplify, simplify.
2: I hate to say this because I have enjoyed this so much today. We're right up to the end of the show. And so I'm going to ask you, what's the thought you'd like to leave with the listeners today?
3: Well, I would like listeners to know that writing is by and large free. It's fun and it's a wonderful way to get some sort of perspective on yourself. So those are three thoughts I would like to leave you with. And I would also like to say that if you create one of these pieces, it's a precious gift for the people in your life. I've had some of these um, writers in the, uh, who've done this already tell me that, you know, they didn't wait till the end to share this thing. They did it at the Thanksgiving table, you know, and it, it transformed the, the occasion, you know, that kind of intimacy that it, um, it, uh, it gave the occasion.
2: And I think it's even a surprise, probably to the writer, the way it puts things in perspective for them. Yeah. And lets them see even the bigger picture uh, and where they've been and how far they've come. Yeah. Alan, it's been so delightful having you on the show today.
3: Uh, I'm I'm very happy to have been here. I very much appreciate the invitation, Irene. Thank you.
2: I encourage everybody to get this book, Having the Last Say, Capturing Your Legacy in One Small Story by Alan Gelb, G-E-L-B. You will be so glad that you left your legacy in writing. This is Irene Conlon saying thank you so much for being with us today and come back again next week for more of the Self-Improvement Show.
1: Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for The Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here.